I do know one thing, as I emphasized last week, is we've got to have lots and lots of fresh green grass here for the sheep, dark green chlorophyll-filled grass, and bubbling brooks of living water everywhere. That's my biggest and deepest ache for our fellowship as we go through this time, and forever, as we're rebuilding, restructuring, retooling, reorganizing, the wagons are circled. That's, that's an absolute must, beloved. There is no negotiation on those points. Jesus said the proof of loving him, feeding a sheep. And the grass has got to be good because there's a lot of junk out there. Lots of junk that's easily accessible. So it's our burden, those who are graced and gifted to bring the word, it's got to be green. And the other thing is that it has to be dripping, if you will, with the Spirit of God. There are many, many expressions of the body of Christ where they're super focused on the text, and rightly so, but something's missing. Dry, heady, critical. It won't do. Not in these days. You've got to have that, the text, the text, the text, the life is in the text, but coupled with uh, the bubbling streams of living water. You have other expressions of the body of Christ who seem to just keep pursuing the experience of the water, and it's a noble thing to do. But you, when you go and you're with those groups or listen to them, something's missing. They're missing like the rock of the text. Too much stuff floating around up there. So I'm, I'm aching for us that, just like I do with camp every year, is that the experiences the campers have at camp are text-driven. That's why I'm, I, I, you know, the, the, the other preachers know that, you know, we want solid doctrine that the young people can respond to. It's easy to hype up young people. Easy. And it happens all the time. And you know what, beloved? When those big things are done, or even little things and all that hype and excitement and cheering and yelling, and it's all over, if it wasn't text-saturated, it ain't much. So that's, the, that's an ache. Now, another deep ache um, if Emmanuel is to get her moorings, and uh, as, far, as far as that being text-based and, and living water, people love this church and have loved it for decades because of the worship that comes up from here. And so, let's have it keep coming from the fountains of the Word. Uh, one Lord spoke to me many years ago because I feel so deeply about this is what came to me. His deepest fountains of experience are in the foundations of doctrine. Okay? Now, the other essential, if we're going to make it, I mean, hey, any, you know, there are all kinds of churches out there that make it, but they don't please God. Remember what we said last week is that if the church doesn't have the gospel, they don't have God. They can call themselves by his name, gather, but if they've lost the gospel, you ain't got God. He only comes with his presence where his precepts are. You lose the gospel, you're done. So, of course, Emmanuel must protect the gospel. And here's the other major thing that we've got to keep at the nuclear reactor core of our fellowship, and that is, it's got to be Christ-centered. He's got to be the middle of everything. Well, Gertie, that's a no-brainer. No, it's not. No, it's not. Many of the biggest churches, the reason they're big is because they're man-centered. You start preaching Christ and Him crucified, and the whole counsel of God, they'll, they'll, they'll go down. 
That's how you build churches. Two ways to build a church. God's way and man's way. And the devil loves man's way. Remember what, when, uh, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter tried to stop him from going to the cross. What did, what did Jesus say? He said, you're thinking as the devil. No. Jesus said, you're thinking as man thinks. That's one of the biggest body slams to the to human race that's ever been spoken. Jesus told Peter after Satan spoke through him, you're not speaking as God speaks, you're speaking as man speaks. He didn't even blame the devil. Because the devil has all kinds of material to work with from fallen human nature. I've got to get going with the text. Now, being Christ-centered, I know all the Old Testament prefigures the Lord Jesus and points to him. And then the New Testament, of course, is the fulfillment of it. And the New Testament just squirts him. And, of course, Jesus told the disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, he showed them all that was written of him in the Law and the Psalms and the Prophets. The whole Old Testament was him. All right, but now the New Testament, all of it, of course, is about him. And uh, you don't have to be under a preacher very long to tell who they're, to who they're focused on. Him or them? The best way to care for them is to be focused on him. Best way. Oh, ooey gooey, it's all about you. You just, these sermons that I, I can just, you can sit and listen to them for like 30 seconds, you know exactly where the guy's coming from. Oh, you, you didn't, it turns your stomach. He, he's like, stop trying to pander to the people. That's not how you care for them. You lock eyes with him and then do whatever he tells you and say whatever he says. But there are five what I call choice Christological chapters uh, or portions of the word in the New Testament that um, are worthy of, of memorization. And they so magnify the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Indispensable. Um, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, the prologue. That's one of those ones you should be memorizing. Okay? And uh, another one, Philippians chapter 2, the Carmen Christi. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, called the Carmen Christi, about the Lord's incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, suffering. The other one is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 uh, through 21. And then the other one is Hebrews chapter 2, which deals with Jesus' humanity. And then the one we're going to cover today is Hebrews chapter 1, which covered Jesus' deity. And it's going to be a miracle. Ugh, I can't believe what time it is, but may he help. I mean, I got a headache last night, stuffing my brain with scripture. I was like, bah, 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 bah. and I mean, it was a nice headache to have. If you have to have one, is that you're just, <clears throat> Lord, how am I going to get this? Um, because I spent so much time this week in the Greek, uh, all week in the Greek, and Greek commentaries and Greek, you know, illumination to the text. But all right, now we've got to go get the, the text itself, so to speak, though the Greek was dealing with the text. But verse 1. Now, your Bible most likely says, God, who spoke in times past in many portions and many ways through the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us through his, through his Son. That's not really the Greek. The Greek... Word order in Greek is more important than it is in English. The Greek, when they wanted to say something is important and emphasize, it would be at the beginning of the sentence. So guess what's at the beginning of the sentence in Hebrews 1? It's not God. Of course, he's the priority in everything. But it's different portions and in different ways. That's the first thing on the Holy Spirit's thought as he inspired the writer, the, the Hebrews. Well, what is he talking about? In different portions, in different ways. In other words, when the, when the Lord was revealing his eternal plan in the person of his son in the Old Testament, it was always fragmentary. 
One person didn't get it all. So in the pro, pro avail, I can't pronounce it right, but the pro, and yeah, Genesis 3.15, okay? Um, when, of course, after the fall, and what did, you know, the Lord tell Adam that the, the, the seed of the woman was coming? Here's the first hint, okay? We're, we're getting something here. And he is going to suffer personal in injury, but he's going to serpent's head, his, his head's over. So that was the first hint. And then it goes, you know, keeps going on. And then you see that this person that's coming is going to be a Jew. Of all the nations of the earth, going to be a Jew. Okay? Through Abraham. Okay? Then we find out that not just a Jew, but he's going to be from the line of David. And David will not fail to have someone sit on his throne forever. Ah, so little glimpses by, like this, we get little pieces of a puzzle, but they're all fragmentary. That's what the author's saying. And so, what else do we find out? From Micah, we find out where this person who's coming is going to be born. In Bethlehem. In Daniel, uh, we know that uh, he's going to have a kingdom that once it's established after Rome and Rome falls, his kingdom is started during the time of Rome, and no other kingdom is replacing his. That's when the kingdom of God was set up, when the Lord Jesus came and inaugurated his work, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing, and there's no other, oh, that was nice, once the next, there is no other kingdom coming. That's what the Lord revealed to Daniel. He also revealed to Daniel that the Messiah will be cut off. Isaiah, who we saw this morning. Oh, my dear. Yeah, maybe of all the prophets, he definitely had the most insight and revelation of the Messiah. But, of course, you heard some of it. But it would have a miraculous virgin birth. And it would be a male. What else? Oh, you know, deity. With all the titles in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Um, that his rest would be glorious. And all the nations would go to him. So Isaiah is giving these. Then, of course, Isaiah 53, the crown jewel of the Old Testament, is that whoever this person is who's coming, this Messiah, something dreadful is going to happen to him where he's going to bear the iniquity and the sins of his people. And the Lord himself, Yahweh, is going to lay the sins of his people on this suffering servant. So it says in different portions and in different manners. And you know all the different ways that the Lord spoke where he spoke in angels and dreams and theophanies and angelologies and there were angelophanies, I should say, and the different ways, um, just the different manners that the Lord spoke to the prophets and how he communicated with them with miracles and visions and dreams. But that's not really what this text is talking about. Is not how the Lord spoke to the prophet. It means how the prophet spoke to the people in many ways. Ezekiel, it says he laid on his side for 390 days and he ate food cooked over animal dung. Why? Showing the plight of the Israelites, their captivity that was coming and how they had defiled themselves with sin and abandoning the Lord. Then he had Ezekiel also build a mound, a siege mound of Jerusalem. And then he was going to build up ramparts against it. What are you doing, Ezekiel? What are you trying to tell us? Uh, you're going into captivity. And there were so many different ways that the prophets spoke to Israel. Now, here's the thing to remember. Of all the nations of the earth, God has absolute sovereign freedom to have mercy on whom he wants to and whom he doesn't want to. If he can't do that, he's not God. No, you have to be just, you have to choose the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Philistines. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Of all the nations of the earth, he chose this one. Now get this down, because this is very important. God did not choose Israel because Israel was special. Israel is special because God chose them. 
And God knows the nature of man, and he was very emphatic to Israel, had to keep hammering it to her. I didn't choose you because I saw anything in you. In fact, there are at least three texts in the Old Testament that said that Israel became more evil than the nations surrounding her. My pirate renegade flag. Well, Gertie, that's not the flag of the Philistines. As far as God's concerned, they all look like this spiritually. Israel became worse and more evil than them. And God even had Israel wipe them out. Did the Lord know when he, did he know when he chose Israel that she would become more evil than them? Sure he did. He still chose them. And you don't understand that. You don't understand why God chose you. You're digging yourself spiritually. Well, he saw that I had this in me or one day I'd do that. Shut your mouth. You're only going to be embarrassed at Judgment Day when you see that it all had to do with him. He spoke to our fathers in times past through the prophets. Barbie dolls are everywhere. You know how hard it is to find a Ken doll? <laughs> this, is, this is awesome. It says that he spoke in times past through the prophets. The prophets were created. They were mortal. They were finite. They were sinners. They came from the dust, and to the dust they would return, except for Elijah and Enoch. You see? In those days, and may I say this, you won't understand the epistle to the Hebrews unless you understand the major reason why it was written. The epistle to the Hebrews was written to warn Hebrew Christians not to go back to the old system, which was what they were being tempted with. They wanted to go back to the old ways. And the author of the Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, came on him to write this to keep them from doing so. That's the main reason the epistle was written. All right? So he's comparing Jesus and the new covenant to the old covenant. And the people who brought you the message of the old covenant, they were prophets, highly esteemed, but they were men. Now watch, that's what he used to do in those days. Here we go. Just in case any of you have never been with me before, I was a children's pastor full-time for 14 years, and I learned how to preach preaching to children, and to be honest with you, it's very hard to preach any other way than I do. And I, I can if I have to, but if I don't have to, thank you. So, but in these last days, he's spoken times past through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken unto us through a son. Now, if your Bible version says through his son, they mean well, but they really rob the text of what it says literally. You, you don't want it to say his son. Well, Gertie, isn't Yes, of course it's his son. But the Holy Spirit to the author is not emphasizing that. The person of the Lord Jesus, he's emphasizing the difference between the nature of this spokesman and the prophets. They were prophets, like I said, all that they created, mortal, sinners, but all of a sudden now, in the Greek it says, now he has spoken unto us through, or it says technically, in a son. In other words, not a prophet, somebody outside of him, in a son. In other words, oh my dear, someone who came from him, 
God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one in being with the Father. Now, you, now he's speaking to the new people in the New Testament by a son. And here we go up the ladder of Jesus' glory. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. Why? Because Jesus, God, was pleased to have him be the primary agent in creation. Colossians chapter 1, uh, one, 1 verse 16, and John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were created by him, and without him there wasn't one single thing that has been made. And you know what? Because he created them primarily, all three members of the Godhead or Trinity were involved in creation. But he was the primary one, and it was the Father's good pleasure that that was so. And son, because you created it, you own it. And you have sovereign rule over it. So he, he, the Father appointed him heir of all things. Even the nation, Psalm, Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, it says, I have given you the heathen as an inheritance. We used to sing that at Elam, right? I don't know if you guys sang it then, but we used to sing it decades ago, and we sang it as though the Lord was going to give us the heathen uh, so as far as to win him to the Lord. Uh, boy, did we take that psalm out of context. No, that's not the reason he's giving his son uh, the heathen. In the end times, he's giving the heathen to his son so he can destroy them with a, a, a rod of iron. Context is everything. It says, whom I appointed heir of all things. Now watch now. The son, Kim did ask me about, if I, she could hold the ladder. Imagine that. The son is the, is the radiance of God's glory. I'm glad, Luke, you're closing your eyes. That's the idea. You can't look into his... Look at, look at Lexi there. Come on, Gert, put the light on. You see, he is the radiance of God's glory. The Greek is apogosma. It's the only place in the New Testament it's used. Scholars d d d disagree whether it's effulgence or a radiance or if it's a reflection. I tend to think it's the effulgence, the, the radiance of God's glory. Now, here's the danger. If God is the sun and the rays are the Lord Jesus, the outshining, in a way that robs God of glory because Jesus isn't just the ray, so one scholar whose name was Weiss, he got it. He said that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and that, you know, we have the sun or the light bulb and it, Jesus just isn't the rays being cast, but it reproduces another light bulb just like it. That scholar's onto something because he's no less than the Father. Different person, same essence. He's the radiance of God's glory. What's God's glory? The two main... Now, I'm going to turn this back on. Two, the two major definitions of God's glory. One, his radiant splendor. His radiant splendor. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that God dwells in unapproachable light. At the transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, remember? Jesus called Peter, James, and John up. You know what he said? Hey, bros, just, just you three, come on up that mountain with me. They go up there, and what does he do? He was transfigured before them. His face shone like lightning. His clothes were whiter than any launderer could make them. So you know what Jesus was telling them? Hey, bros, this is who I really am. But I keep the light off for your sake. So that's that aspect of the glory of God. But the far more important one than resplendent is this one. The glory of God is the manifestation of God's perfections. The glory of God is the revealing or the manifestation of his perfections. 
every single aspect. And hard to see uh, this, but only the second time using this one. But it just came to me as I meditated on this, as I think about it. Every characteristic, attribute, quality of God, Jesus has. His wisdom, his holiness, his righteousness, his purity, his holy anger, which is adorable. Preachers rob God by not preaching of the wrath of God. It's one of the most adorable things about him. One of the reasons that you're not under it anymore. And so here, the glory of God, all of his perfections are radiated in Jesus. And it says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's character. Colossians 1.15, it says that Jesus is the image of God. In the Greek there, it's icon, that we get our icon. How many of you have an icon on your phone? Oh, Jesus is just a man thinking he's God. Really? Have you ever tapped the icon on your phone, beloved? Oh, it's just a little square box on my phone. Oh, really? Tap it. Amen? You tap that little icon, it opens up to the universe of the Internet. Image, icon of the invisible God. Philip, have I been with you for so long and still you say, show us the Father? Don't you know when you see the Father, you see me? John 14, 9. John 12, 45, when you see me, you see the Father. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Now, cults love that verse because they misinterpret it. The Greek says, they say, see, Jesus is the same person as the Father, and they only reveal themselves at different times. That's a heresy that United Pentecostals embrace today. Always been a heresy called modalism. No, Jesus is a different person from the Father. In that verse, John 10, 30, you know what the Greek says? The Father, he, we are one, plural. It's a plural verb. We are one. In other words, we share the same essence, the divine eternal essence of all of its attributes. We are one. So he's the image of the invisible God. Now, all of a sudden, through whom he made the universe, which we already talked about, the Lord Jesus being the creator of all things, both seen and unseen. Now, but all of a sudden, something, we stop climbing the ladder of his exaltation and glory, and something inconceivable happens. Okay, first track. Crank it, baby. What are you listening to? Before Jesus came to earth. Daniel chapter 7, verse 10. 100 million angels worshiping him. And in a billionth of a second, next. In the billionth of a second, beloved, he goes from the glory of heaven being surrounded by innumerable angels to being a microscopic human being, God-man, in Mary's womb in Nazareth. Why? Thank you. Why? Because the next part of that verse says, because the next part of that verse says, he was all of those things, but it says, after he provided 
purification of sin. Is Katerina still in here? Is she outside? Is she here today, Catherine, Katerina? I call it, you guys call her Catherine Krug, but her name is Katerina. I always tease her about it. That was Martin Luther's wife. Is she here? Anyone else here, Catherine, first or middle name? Okay, now you know, okay, we got a Kathleen and a Catherine. Now, here's why. The Greek there is, Kath- is Katharis- Katharismos. It's, it's where we get our name Catherine from. It says, after Jesus provided the catharization of our sin. I love what one scholar said. He effected the purgation. Burned it right out of you. How? He had to have blood. The eternal son, surrounded by all those angels, didn't have any blood, couldn't die. That's why he dropped, so to speak, from the ladder to the lowest of men. For a little while, Hebrews 2, he was made lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. Now, it's interesting. He's exalting the glories of the pre-incarnate Christ, and he only mentions one little reference like that after he provided the purgation. You know why? It's because he's going to spend so much of the rest of the epistle on Jesus' high priesthood. But here's the awesome thing. Your, your Bible might say, after, when he by himself purified us from sin, that's not in the Greek, and here's the, it doesn't need to be, that was added, I believe, by King James Version, but it doesn't have to be. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit inspired the author to put it in the middle voice. When someone often in Greek does something in the middle voice, it means they're doing it for themselves. So Jesus did it by himself. He did it for himself. He did it for his behalf. What? Taking our sins away. And this scholar said that the, the middle voice does more than inserting and adding to it by himself could ever do. What did he do then? After he had provided purgation from sin, it says, I lost the Lord. There he is. It says, he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. He couldn't get any more glorious, beloved, essentially. You can't add to God or take away from him. That's why heretics, uh, and, and there's a real, real popular one, I'm not going to say he's not a Christian, but he has a lot of influence in the world. And he's got a real bad theology of Jesus. A bad one. Because he thinks that when Jesus became a man that he emptied himself of some deity. No, he didn't. If he could empty himself of deity, he wasn't deity in the first place. Because one of the characteristics of deity is it is not changeable. The deity can take something added onto itself like his humanity, but it can't throw any deified cargo off. So here Jesus became even more gloriously exalted as far as, how do I say it, attributive glory than he had if he hadn't become a man and affected the purgation. Now, that's why it says God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. Now, and he inherited a name because of what he did that is superior to the angels He has become so much more superior to the angels as the name that he inherited is greater than theirs. Now, why all of a sudden would the author start talking about angels? That kind of was jarring. What are you bringing them into the picture for? Picture four. Remember, he's writing to warn Jews not to go back to the old covenant. Why would he bring up angels? Because 
when Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai, it was not from the Lord. Ultimately, it was, of course. The Lord used angels. Galatians 3.19, Acts 7.38, Acts 7.53, Hebrews 2.2. The Lord used the mediators of angels. And so in the Jewish mind, and understandably so, angels were right, as far as rank and glory, they were right under God. So all of a sudden, here comes this author, this writer, and he's saying Jesus is higher than the angels. In the first century Jewish mind, that could only mean one thing. Uh, this carpenter's son is God. No wonder they tried to kill him so many times. It says he received the name that was superior to the angels. He became as much more superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. Now watch. Then he starts to quote seven verses from the Old Testament to prove this. For which of the angels did God, the Father, ever say, and I love it how the Greek brings it out better, your versions will say, you are my son, this day I have begotten thee. But in the Greek it says, son of mine you are. I'm glad Caleb's not here today, my youngest son, because I'd embarrass him. But when he was a little boy, all the time, I'd go, I'd point at him, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. And then after a while, I did it so much for so many years, and I just used to go like this. So if you went up to Bear and said that to him, he'd know what you're doing. But there was something as a father, he's mine. He's my son. He belongs to me. He came from me. I don't mean, of course, I can't do it without her. But I'm talking about in the context of the father-son relationship. You're mine. Bear will probably not ever hear the end of that if, he, if you guys tell him. All right? But that's what swells in the heart of a father. And that's what... And the author's saying, you guys are really exalting these angels. Can you tell me any angels that God ever said that to? Angels are called the sons of God in the plural, never in the, never in the singular. Job chapter 1, Psalm 89. They're sons of God, but never one angel is called the son of God. Or, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, 14. Nope, no angel is ever told that by God. Or, this was added for the first time, and I can hardly wait. And you know what? I hope you guys just give me patience. I'm going to be gone for you know, a couple weeks, so I can get out of town and not get in trouble. But you're going to love it, because this is what... Okay. So then it says, the third verse, And when he again brings his son, his firstborn, into the world. Track three. Crank it. What's going on, Gert? Heaven... Jesus Christ is sitting on his throne next to the Father, waiting for the Father to nod to him and nod his head. It's time to go back, son. Hear the horses? That's Jesus' horse. They're bridling him up. It says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. God will pay retribution and get vengeance for his people. It says, when Jesus appears with his powerful angels in blazing fire. To deal out retribution to those who don't know God. And those who do not obey the gospel. Crank it, it's gotta be louder. 
You'll understand why in a minute. What happened? I lost my volume. Really loud, buddy. You can deal with me later. The Lord's standing there. Angel! Yes, Lord. I want the archangels in the front. It is done, Lord. Seraphim on the right. Yes, Lord. Four living creatures on the left. Yes, Lord. All the other angels be back behind the saints. Yes, it's done, Lord. Then this. The angel comes up to him. Lord, you want your battle helmet? That's what Jesus says. No, thanks. These will do. What's it say? Revelation chapter 19? John says, I looked, and there before me was a white horse, and him who sat upon it, and on his head were many crowds. Here they come. The Father's given the word. Go get him, son! You know, he's been chomping at the bit to come back. It says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, that the, that the second coming, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will root out of his kingdom every person who stumbles other people with sin. And everyone who is lawless, the angels are coming. How many remember the Wizard of Oz? Wizard of Oz? Come on. There got to be more baby boomers. Thank you, my son. Okay, I'm sure I'm older than you, Steve. Wizard of Oz! 1939, 80 years ago, last, week, last year. One of the most terrifying scenes in that whole movie is when Dorothy's friends are trying to save her from the witch's castle. They're in the woods, and all of a sudden they hear this... And they look up, and what did they see coming? The flying monkeys! I have thought of that in all the years I have preached and taught on the second coming and judgment day. I've thought of that scene so many times because that was special effects of 1939. And I was scared to death. Imagine, beloved, one day, all of his enemies, all of Jesus' critics, atheists, agnostics, evolutionists, all of them, bloggers who were just digging themselves, they're getting rich and famous, putting him down, relegating him to the past or to another closet somewhere. And all of a sudden, here he comes. And they're going to look up, and they're going to see, see Jesus' angels coming for them. Now watch. Oh, oh my dear, this was blowing me away. All right. We can go back to the background music. Thank you. Just a very quick review of the angels in Revelation. You have angels with sharp sickles. You have angels that carry bowls of judgment. You have an angel that stands in the sun. You have another angel who comes and he's so radiant with glory that he shines like the sun, but he has a rainbow over his head. You have another angel when he grabs Satan. The text gives no indication there was any struggle at all by the most evil entity in the universe. It says that this angel took Satan in Revelation chapter 20 and threw him into the bottomless pit. Four living creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 4. Seraphim already mentioned, Isaiah chapter 6. Angels are everywhere. They, they carry weapons. They're a lightning speed, as one theologian said years ago. And they're coming with the Lord Jesus. No wonder the Apostle John, who had his head on the chest of the Son of God himself, John, who wrote more of the deity of Christ than all the Gospels, and yet John, twice in Revelation, went to worship and... An angel! John! What did the angel say? Now, if he was a fallen angel, he'd lap it up. He'd eat it up. That's what, that's what demons do. They want worship. No, I'm a fellow servant like you. Now watch, when he brings his, his firstborn into the world again, this is what he says. 
Let all of God's angels, and that does, that's a bad rendition in the English. It says, let, them, let all the angels, in other words, we permit you to. No, 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 no. It's Greek imperative. All of God's angels worship him. It means bow down to him. As I was meditating on this last night, I was scared of my boots for his enemies. You know, you know who's going to be in that crowd of angels, beloved, who come to get revenge? Those 72,000 who were drooling to come and rescue him from the arrest in the garden. They had no idea what was going on. When they saw, remember, the thugs come and get Jesus? Remember? Peter, put your sword away. Peter's sword against, against four angels in Revelation, it says, will kill a third of the earth's population. Four angels kill billions of people. Peter's pulling the sword out. Don't you know I can call my father right now? And he can send me six legions, 12 legions, right? Six, 72,000 angels. God bless you. But watch. God the Father commands all of God's angels must worship him. Does that make you shake in your boots of fear for his enemies? Oh, that's okay. That's the angels. Okay, that's what's going on with the sun. But what about the angels? What about the angels? And this is what it says. But if the angels, he says, honey, pack our bags so we can get out of town fast, okay? Of the angels, he says, what about the angels then, Gert? I'll show you. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They're just created fire and wind, doing the Lord's bidding, whatever he wants. Right? But of the Son, he says, next verse, this is God the Father speaking to Jesus. This is another one that makes me shake in my boots for cults and unbelievers who deny Jesus his deity because they're arguing with God the Father. Of the Son, God the Father says, your throne, O God, O God, is forever and ever. So now you have the Lord Jesus being ascribed deity by God the Father. Same essence, same being, different persons. And there's another aspect of, the, of, of, uh, of God that he doesn't share with anyone else, eternality. Well, Gertie, we're going to live forever. We are. Only in one direction. It's both ways. Right. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness the Lord Jesus loved righteousness. I always do what my father says. John 8, 29. You have loved righteousness. He said, don't think I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. John 5, 17 and 18. He loved righteousness. And, there's, and beloved, you can tell when you really love righteousness and love God and love holiness by how much you hate wickedness. You're tolerating a lot and flowing with the culture. You don't know God that well and you don't love him much. I'm never coming back. Well, well, that's okay, but go to your closet and get in the text and find out who God really is. You talk about this. I've never done a study on this, and I did it recently, and my jaw was on the floor. You have loved righteousness, but you hated iniquity. It says that Jesus, remember, he made a scourge, didn't he, when he cleansed the temple? Remember? What about the man in John chapter 5 who had been paralyzed for 38 years laying there? And what did Jesus say after he healed him? Go and sin no more, lest something worse happens to you. 
Come on, Lord, 38 years of laying there, something worse happens to you. And Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman and lusts after her in his, in his heart, you've already committed adultery as far as God's concerned. It's better, now watch Jesus now, better pluck your eye out and get into heaven with one eye and have both eyes and go to hell. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off! Better to go in, in, into life maimed than to hell with both hands. Did Jesus love righteousness and hate iniquity, beloved? That's why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 19, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Therefore, because Jesus was that way, therefore, son, because you love righteousness and hate iniquity, God, even your God. So isn't it amazing, beloved? Just a second ago, God the Father called Jesus God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And now he's saying this, because you loved righteousness and hated iniquity, God, your God. Now he's saying that to Jesus because now he's the God-man. That's why Jesus said in John 21, I go to my God, but Jesus, you're God too. Yep, but I'm also, I'm the God-man. And I'm happy to have him be my God because now I'm a man and will forever be one. He's never going back to what he was before the incarnation. Now he's God-man. He delights. I go back to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. Because Jesus loved righteousness and hated iniquity. It says that God, even his God, anointed him with the oil of joy above all of his fellows. Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel. What was the other thing? John 3, 34, it says that the Father gave Jesus the Holy Spirit without measure. Without measure. He is, his name is title, the Anointed One. Above all your fellows. We're almost done. But now the Son, he also says, in the beginning, Lord. Now remember, this is still God the Father talking. In the beginning, Lord, calling Jesus Lord. You know, if you are there in the beginning before anything was, that's what in the beginning means. It means before anything else existed. Uh, you're not human. Oh, it's a special angel, Gert. No, 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 no. The beginning before angels were created. And the Father's saying that Jesus was there in the beginning when nothing else was. All things were created by him, and without him, not one single thing, that's what the Greek says, has been made that has been made. So here the Father's telling Jesus, in the beginning, Lord, I just shudder in my boots when I think of his enemies, if they die in their sin. You laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, they will perish like a garment. The church let me have this 20 years ago for a time machine drama, Nadab. I did it at WCS, <laughs> 1997. And I needed to have Nadab look like he just came from the fire of God. So they actually let me burn this choir boat. D, where's D? You haven't been missing one, have you? There it is. <laughs> See, the heavens, it says, like a garment, they will wear out. 
And then Jesus says, in the Greek there, it's, it means wrap around, and like a mantle, you will wrap them up. Now think about it, beloved, just for a minute. This is worth the time. Come on. Come on, you'd be home eating hot dogs, watching TV anyway, right? Just for almost done. Think about it now. Jude and James were probably lying on a mat on a dirt floor for 30 years next to this person in Nazareth every night. You laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will wear out. But watch. But you remain. Greek tense there, present tense. In other words, one scholar said, enduring permanency. The father saying that about him. You remain. I have often wanted to do this as a Christian cartoon. And then about Jesus' per, uh, priesthood, his high priesthood, later on in Hebrews, says that he has an everlasting priesthood because he has an indestructible life. And I pictured the application office of the high priesthood and a whole bunch of applicants standing in line. And Jesus is, has the job presently. And then a few slides down, they're all skeletons because he never stops being high priest. He ever lives to make intercession. Almost, I've been saying it. But you remain the same. Another characteristic of deity, immutability. Jesus doesn't change. The same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. Malachi 3, 6 says that I, the Lord, this is Jesus talking, do not change. Therefore, you, sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And then the last verse in this first Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are not angels ministering spirits Wait a minute, Gert. Uh, you just talked about angels like uh, killing uh, billions of people and having bowls of judgment. And there's even an angel in Revelation um, that says he's in charge of the fire. And, and you're saying now, no, I'm not. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Hebrews. Aren't angels all just ministering spirits sent to minister to those who will be heirs of salvation? These are powerful entities that are so much more glorious than us. God ha had to seal them in holiness at the fall of at the angelic fall. Do you know why? There's no way an angel would not get envious like Satan was if they weren't sealed in holiness after the fall and do the same thing again. Think of how humble the angels must be. So much more powerful and glorious and radiant than a human being. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, like you and me. But God... He's going to have the angels for all of eternity. Even right now, they minister to us. They, they exist to bless and worship him, do his bidding, and to serve God's people. So if they weren't sealed, I have no doubt there would be another rebellion out of envy and pride and jealousy. How many of you remember Narnia? One of my favorite scenes is, is when, is when the, the four children are coming into Aslan's camp. Oh, sorry, Lar. They're coming into Aslan's camp, remember? And Aslan's tents all set up, and all those weird-looking creatures. We had one in here years ago for a drama we did, Mark Vanderhaar. Oop, I blew his cover. But you remember all the creatures were standing on each side? And as the children walked towards Aslan, what did they do? They bowed their heads. To the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve. Why? 
It's because they're sent to serve us. Let's bow our heads. Thank you so very much for your patience. Now, that's the end of chapter one. In the light of that, the author, he's convincing, convincingly demonstrated that the angels don't hold a candle to Jesus as far as superiority. And he goes like this. In the light of that, verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore we need to pay the more careful attention to the things that we have heard. Why, author? Because if the message spoken by angels was binding, he's talking about the law of Moses given to him by angels from God. If the law of God, the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience of it brought a just penalty, if that's what happened disobeying angels, he goes, how shall we escape such a great salvation that was first proclaimed by the Lord, the Lord we just talked about in chapter 1, and then later confirmed by those who were with him, the Holy Spirit confirming it with signs and wonders. You see, beloved, we have a great, great blessing being part of God's chosen people, but a very, very sobering responsibility. If you're in the room, like last week, you have not run to the Savior to flee from the wrath to come, and it's coming. Embrace the one who we said he affected the purgation or the cleansing of sin. You embrace him, Father. The Father becomes your Father. Jesus is God, becomes your God. He purges the sin, clothes you, clothes you in his righteousness. Father, do what your spirit can only do. Just pray that the word sown, Lord, would be sealed in the hearts of your people. <coughs> the Holy Spirit would water it, Lord. More and more earth would be put on the sea to keep it from the birds. And fruit would remain as you help our church, Lord, progress into what you have for us. In Jesus' name.